Well, welcome to the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship 2022 conference. And uh, we're excited to be able to uh, minister the scriptures to you uh, this weekend and uh, next month and uh, November as well. And I uh, trust that you'll be encouraged and equipped. How many of you guys have been in track two before, an advanced track or an exam track? Okay, great, great. So um, not all the uh, the stuff in the advanced tracks tends to, um, we tend to add things as we go along. And so there are actually a number of new lectures uh, this year. And so trust that you will be encouraged and helped in those things. And uh, let me just lead us in prayer as we get started. And then we're going to jump in. Thanks, Father, for the evening, for an opportunity to gather together. Thank you for the bond that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his cross that has redeemed us. We are so dependent, needy uh, on that cross. Um, our hearts, apart from Christ, are so desperately wicked. And uh, we thank you that he has uh, bought every sin and he has redeemed every sin and, and is in the process of redeeming every sin. Uh, we are restored to you and he is restoring us progressively in, in sanctification to you. And thank you, Father, for uh, the glorious unity that we have with the triune God. And Father, thank you that we have also been grafted uh, into the promises of Israel and that we have been united uh, as a body of believers so that we not only are unified with one an- with you, but with one another as well and for the harmony and the joy that that brings. Thank you for uh, the corrective nature of the scriptures and thank you that the scriptures are adequate for us to help those who are in need. And, and Father, so many in this world are in need and we thank you for the privilege of caring for them And we pray particularly this evening as we think about our own hearts that you would be equipping us and preparing us and enabling us um, to be better uh, stewards of the grace that has been entrusted to us and that we first would grow and then that we would minister to others out of the overflow of what you have worked in us. So would you change us and transform us uh, even in this hour we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I came to biblical counseling a little bit late. I didn't come to biblical counseling uh, straight out of seminary. But there were a lot of things that God uh, did work in my life in seminary in preparing me for getting to the pastorate. I had courses that taught me in the biblical languages so that by the time I I came to preach, I felt quite comfortable um, opening opening the text and looking at the text and discerning what the meaning of the text was. I had courses in hermeneutics and theology to help um, help me put things together in packages so that I uh, could communicate well and stay within the realm of what's orthodox faith. I had practical courses in things like evangelism and pastoral care and even counseling, though those courses proved to be quite unhelpful, actually. Um, so when I got to my office on the first day in August of 1990 as a pastor, I, I honestly, I felt pretty well equipped. I mean, everything was going to be new, but I felt equipped. And there was one massive surprise waiting for me, though, that I did not anticipate. And it was this. I was not ready to pour myself out in caring for people and feeding my own soul and encouraging and building up my, my own soul without somebody pouring into me all my life. I'd gone to church, I'd gone to Sunday school, I'd gone to school and seminary 
and others had poured into me. And now there was no one pouring into me and I was the vessel pouring into others. And I didn't realize how empty I would be, how quickly I would be that empty. I frankly was shocked at what I'll call the personal cost of ministry. And if you're a biblical counselor, my guess is you know that feeling. Um, You fall asleep and you are praying and planning for your counselee. I won't ask for a show of hands, but somewhere between 2 and 3 and 4 a.m., some of you are waking up and you're thinking about your counselee and you're praying for them and you're strategizing and you're contemplating and you're you're concerned about them. Uh, Just recently, I got a text. I was headed to the office and I got a text at 6.30 in the morning and it said, uh, can my wife and I meet you at your office this morning at 8? And texted back, sure. And that started, that was a Thursday morning, and by Friday at 2.30, I realized I'm not going to get to my sermon this week. (laughs) So I pulled something out of the file cabinet and uh, warmed that up from 15 years earlier. In those two days, I probably spent 20 to 25, three days, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I probably spent 25 hours on a case. And I can promise you, I was waking up in the middle of the night, thinking, strategizing, praying, contemplating. Um, you will be heavily invested in the lives of others. Not always in crisis counseling like I just described, but you will be heavily invested uh, when you're engaged with a counselee. And some of you are not just doing one counselee, but you're doing multiple counselees, and, and there's a, there can be a tremendous cost to that. And the question for us this evening is, how do you prepare your heart for that? Uh, how do you how do you prepare yourself to pour yourself out for others? What kind of things do you do to equip yourself for ministry? How do you make sure that you are well prepared to serve those who have been entrusted by the Lord to you for their spiritual care? And here I'm talking about your heart preparation. I'm not talking about, well, I need another course on um, how to counsel someone who's caught in adultery or some kind of abuse situation or some kind of catastrophe, crisis counseling kind of thing. I'm talking about your heart. How do you prepare for that? Bob Kellerman uh, defines it well for us. Imagine that you are forwarding your resume to the Holy Spirit, the divine counselor. What items would you highlight to demonstrate your ability to enter the ranks of biblical counselors? What do the scriptures say? What qualifies a person for biblical counseling? What qualities... Make your trainees eligible to claim the mantle of soul physician and spiritual friend. That's, that's a great question, isn't it? Uh, I like the way he frames that. So I want to take you to a number of texts this evening to help you think about what is essential for your spiritual life. And then along the way as we're going, thinking about some pragmatic ways, things you can do to equip yourself uh, to care for others so that you're operating out of a spiritually full tank and you're not empty and not emptied by the ministry of caring for others. And I want to start by going to a passage that I trust is very familiar to you. Uh, Take your copy of the scriptures and open to Romans 15. Romans 15. What verse am I going to? 14. 14. a girl. Somebody's been paying attention. Oh, well... (laughs) Cheaters! Man! Okay. So I do have some other questions coming up, and they're not in your notes. Okay. One passage to guide the spiritual life. 
of all biblical counselors. Um, Romans fifteen fourteen. And concerning you, my brothers, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. What, what the Apostle Paul is doing, he's writing the Romans, he's telling the Romans, I want you to get behind me in my venture. I'm going to take, uh, take the gospel to Spain, Lord willing. I want you guys to be my supporters. And he's, he's been laying out for them his theology of life and ministry. He's been telling them about, in the last few chapters, starting in chapter 12, what ministry looks like and what service looks like. And now as he gets to the end of that section, after having explained what ministry is, he says, oh, by the way, you guys are equipped to do this. That's what he's saying in verse 14. Concerning you. Now, not just thinking in general terms, but thinking specifically about you, Roman church. Uh, I am convinced that you, you yourselves, he's emphatic there with the pronoun, are full of goodness. And there when he says full of goodness, he's not talking about the imputed goodness of Jesus Christ. Now that's a possibility. It's certainly true that they are full of the goodness of Jesus Christ. But he is saying you have learned how to, because of your fellowship with Jesus Christ, be good. You not only are have that imputed righteousness from Christ, but you are good. You do good things. God has been transforming you and changing you. This is the goodness that he's talking about that comes from obeying Jesus Christ. It's moral character and moral goodness. These are men and women who love good and who do good. Notice also he says not only that you're full of goodness, but he also says you are filled with all knowledge. Um, by that, he simply means you've become mature in the faith. You've studied the scriptures. You know the scriptures. People ask you questions. You know where to go in the scriptures. You understand and interpret correctly. They're like the Bereans, right, who studied the scriptures when Paul preached to see, is that right? And that's the character of the Romans as well. They studied the truth and they knew the truth. And then he says, out of the overflow of that, you're full of goodness. You have knowledge and you are able also to admonish one another. Uh, this is where Jay Adams got that phrase that he used for one of his one of his first books, competent to counsel. You're competent to admonish. You're competent to counsel. You're com- competent to exhort and compel and instruct. Um, that competency uh, comes from the word ability, right? And that uh, the word ability is a present tense. So he says you have an ongoing ability to care for others in the body of Christ. And then notice as well, he says, you have an ability to admonish, counsel, exhort. It's our word, nuthateo, to which we are familiar as biblical counselors, um, admonishing one another. So there's a mutuality of it. So sometimes I admonish you, sometimes you admonish me. And so we are mutually building into and caring for one another. And and by that, he's also indicating that this is something for everyone, right? So... Counseling and admonishing isn't just for particular people in the body of Christ. It's for everyone. So we tell our people, and I'm sure you hear it here, probably hear it in your church as well. Everybody's a counselor because everybody's dispensing advice. Everybody's telling, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? Go here, buy that car, don't buy that house. Um, Take that job, don't take that job. Take this ministry, don't take that ministry. There were always giving advice and counsel. And Paul says here, you are equipped because of the things that God has built in you through the gospel to do that very thing. Now, for us, because we're counseling, we want that counsel to be what? Biblical, scriptural, right? So 
And, and that's, that's not stated directly, but that's inferred here, isn't it, right? Because he says, you're filled with all knowledge. He's talking there about biblical knowledge. So the inference is, as you're counseling, that's how you're going to care for others. So what does this verse tell us about the ministry of biblical counseling? Well, it tells us a number of things. One, counseling and discipling is an overflow of a believer's maturity and growth. Sound counsel comes from sound faith. An immature believer gives immature counsel. So if someone wants to be a counselor, he has to first live out what he's going to give out. It's got to be worked out in his life first. And we're going to see this a little bit later in a, in a particular text. Um, a counselor is not just a guy in the, in the building, right? It's not just any person. In fact, we've just launched a new discipling strategy in our church. And, and um, we've got lots of people that are wanting some discipling relationships. And it's been a, a really good response to this. And we're looking around for more people to be disciplers. And we've told our counselors... Hey, you, this is what you guys do. You guys, you guys disciple, but you not only disciple, you counsel. It's like the, it's like a step, two steps beyond discipling. And we want to make sure that you guys are doing that job because not just anybody can do what you do. You've been trained and that's going to fit for you guys in this room as well because you've, you've been trained, you've been equipped. And, um, and that's coming and that training and equipping is positioning you to particularly care for others because uh, you should be the kind of person who is mature and growing in Christ. Counseling and discipleship also comes from knowledge. Let me just say it this way. The counselor must be a person of the book. He must know theology. He must know scripture. He must be conversant in the scriptures. He should know the scriptures well and be able to speak about them and explain them effectively and per- persuasively. To counsel means I'm giving direction. I'm telling you, this is the right way to go. This is the avenue to pursue. This is, this is the, these are the things that you need to be thinking of. I'm giving direction, advice. To give good advice means that we're pointing people to the truth of God. We're sharing our knowledge about God and His Word to guide people. So people will tell me, you know, just tell me what to do. I had my daughter do this for me one time. She was just, she had just gone off to school. I don't even remember the issue anymore. She called home and said, I've got this issue. Tell me what to do. And I said, no. She was 18, maybe 19. I said, no, Dad. No, seriously, Dad. Just tell me what to do. No. Um, but I won't tell you what to do, but I can help you think through what are the issues and what does God have to say about those issues? And then you make a decision. Um, and that's what a counselor does. We're pointing people to the truth. What are the relevant issues that are coming to bear from the scriptures on your situation? And we want to help them with that truth. So we've got to, we've got to know the book. We've got to be people of the book. We've got to, to bleed bibline as the saying goes. We must be committed to speaking the truth. I get this from Ephesians 4.15. Uh, you're familiar with that uh, passage. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him, right? So um, we're to speak the truth. We're, we, we speak truthfully, right? So everything that we speak is the truth. We're addressing the issues of the particular person. We're addressing the heart issues. Um, we're asking people, we're discerning questions and 
we're interacting and saying, you know, what's going on in your heart? What are you thinking when, when you're saying this? And what's driving this? What's compelling you to do this particular action? What does God have to say about that motive, that desire, that heart inclination? Now, we're helping them to think about those things truthfully, but we're not only just helping them think about truth, right? We're helping them to think about truth in gracious ways, right? So I had a, a friend tell me one time, you know, um, some, something like, you know, I just speak the truth, and if they don't like it, that's, that's too bad, because I'm just telling them the truth. No, 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 the truth has to be dispensed with grace, with kindness. You don't have to back off the truth, but you can speak the truth in a tender and kind way. Uh, Ephesians would also tell us that we don't only speak the truth, though we live the truth. That, that old phrase, speaking the truth in love, the word speaking actually isn't in the Greek text. It's actually a participle from the word truth, and it simply means truthing in love. So everything we do comes out of the truth, and it's done with love. So it's not just speaking the truth, it's living the truth. Thinking the truth, everything about our lives in accordance is in accordance with the truth of Scripture. Our own lives have been uh, changed by the truth of God. And then all these things we're doing, Romans fifteen fourteen, um, are to give hope uh, to the other person. Encouragement is given so believers would be hopeful in the power of the Spirit. So, verse fourteen, this is going to be shocking to you. Follows verse thirteen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So twice he talks about hope in verse 13 and then he connects it, verse 14, and concerning you. So as I'm thinking about that hope, I think about you and how you've been positioned. And so what we're doing in counseling is designed to give hope. So that guides us. That's kind of the foundation, right? So as you think about your spiritual life, that's, that's the platform out of which we launch ourselves. How do we equip ourselves spiritually? Let me give us nine principles to guide us. Um, nine principles to guide us. One, 1 Timothy 4.16. Discipline yourself spiritually. 1 Timothy 4.16. If you have your Bible... We're going to probably be in First Timothy here a fair bit this evening. First Timothy 4.16, pay attention, excuse me, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So he says, pay close attention to yourselves. That implies that we are always going to be engaged in the process of self-examination. We're watching our own lives first uh, before we're looking at the lives of anybody else. You guys familiar with the process of church discipline? Matthew 18. How many steps in Matthew 18? Four steps, right? Five, so... You go to your brother, see your brother in sin, go to your brother, he doesn't repent, take someone with you, he doesn't repent, take him to the church, and if he doesn't repent, then cast him out. Four steps, right? Five steps. Jay Adams brought this out. The only reason you have to go to your brother is because he has failed to reprove himself. He's missed the step of self-discipline. That's the first step of church discipline. We discipline ourselves. We pay attention to ourselves first. 
And we're thinking, Paul's thinking in this verse anyway, about two things in particular. He's thinking about um, a godly life. He's, he's making sure that we are walking in accordance with God according to His principles. He's pay attention to yourself, to your own life. So um, we see that, if you just turn back a page, we see that in... Uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through verse 13, and the characteristics of elders and deacons. And there's something about elders and deacons. You go, well, yeah, those are elders and deacons, and you know, those are for the guys that are a step up. And, and that's, that's true. There's a sense in which there's a higher responsibility. But if you read through the list, there's nothing remarkable about what's on that list. Everything that's in that list for elders and deacons ought to be true of every believer in Christ. That's Honestly, that's the baseline. That's the norm. It's nothing particularly unusual. And so as he gets to the end of chapter 4, he's admonishing this young pastor, Timothy, pay attention to yourself. Make sure that you are um, living in a way that is godly and conformed to Jesus Christ. And not only godly living, not only paying attention to godly living, but also pay attention to your theology, what you're believing, what you're teaching. You want to be sound in your theology. And this... This idea of sound theology just permeates the pastoral epistles. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. That word sound um, is going to be all the way through there. And it's, it's the word from which we get our word hygienic. So it's pure, it's clean, it's right, um, it's healthy, it's orthodox, it's consistent with the truth of God. It produces healthy people and godly people. Why is theology important? Why, why would Paul say, pay attention to your theology? I mean, isn't, isn't it far more important to just pay attention to your life? Just be godly. Why, is, why does he say, pay attention to your theology? I'm sorry? Your hearts are deceived. We live out our theology. Exactly. And because we live out our theology, we want to watch our hearts and make sure that we're not following some kind of deception. We do what we do because we... Want what we want, and we want what we want because we believe what we believe. So underneath everything I do is a theological grid system. When the husband gets angry at his wife, it's flowing out of theology. When a pastor is driving down the road and he sees a Corvette, brand new, you know, straight off the showroom for it, and he covets, he's... Living out his theology, right? When when you go to the store and you're saying, cinnamon roll, celery. That decision is flowing out of a theology. And Paul says, pay attention to your theology. One, because you're going to be teaching others and you need to make sure you're teaching people orthodoxly, but... Everything you do flows out of that theology, and so you want to be attentive to that. So the question for us this evening is, do I know and understand the Scriptures? Do I know how to interpret the Scriptures? Are you known as a counselor for being biblically and theologically sharp and attentive? Um, my daughter came to me one time, and she was in high school, and she said, uh, Dad, I want to, I want to, um, I want to uh, dye my hair red. Is that okay? I think she was 16 or 17. I said, sure, just answer me a question. Okay. And, you know, she's, she's getting excited. 
How does that glorify God? Oh, damn. I don't know. I just want to color my hair red. I said, well, how does it glorify God? I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying it's not, imp- it's not impossible for red hair. Like, like, I don't know, that can red, right? Not, not a carrot red that you might see on a woman typically. I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm just, I just want to know, have you thought it through? What are the implications of dyeing your hair? How's that going to bring glory to God? I don't know, Dad. Well, answer me the question and then we'll talk about it. Well, how about, how about if I just get a temporary dye, right? Well, I said the same question. But how about if I get a clippy and I just put a clip in my hair and I can wear it? It's the same question, right? Are you, are you known for being theologically astute and precise? Then along with that, and we also want to ask this question, what is the character of your life? What's the character of your actions? What we do is relevant. So Paul says, um, pay attention to yourself and your teaching. He's, he's talking about what you're doing. What's the, what's the nature of your life? Where do you go? What do you do? We want to live in ways that are worthy of Christ. And worthy of imitation. Most of you in here are probably not pastors. Some of you likely are, but not not all of you are. Most of you are not. But the the question for a pastor applies to all of us. Is your life, chapter 3, verse 1, is your life above reproach? Is the way you function above reproach? Why is that important? Because a counselor is not just dispensing advice. This isn't like a secular counselor where you just go, you know, tell me what to do and go and do it. And the life is disconnected. You're not just dispensing advice. You're showing how to live. You're demonstrating a transformed life. And so what you do is integral to what you dispense as counsel and instruction and admonition. And so we might ask ourselves this question. Is there anything that is questionable or disqualifying in our lives? Is there anything hidden? And if there's not, uh, and you're continuing in faithfulness, just thank God for his sustaining grace for you. Because that's not you, that's him. That's his spirit and his word that's done that. We might also ask this question. What is the consumption of your mind and thoughts? Where's your mind consumed? What are you thinking about? When things, are, when things are quiet, when things are still, where does your mind gravitate? Our actions and our teaching are reflections of our minds, right? We operate out of the overflow of our hearts. We do and say what we think. So what does our life reflect about what is going on in our minds? Um, is our mind fixated and settled by contemplations of Christ in His glory? Along with that then, what is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your desires? Everything we think and do is motivated, motivated by desire. Everything I do is because I want something. What is it that I want? How many of you, how many of you are actively counseling? So like, Half to two-thirds. How many of you who are counseling ever have used James 4.1 and desires in counseling? It's like, it's like third session. 
just about with every counselee, right? Third or fourth or fifth, somewhere in there, right? You just, you're going to that. Why? Because desires are critical, aren't they? That's what you want to root out. You're not just wanting to change behavior. You're wanting to change heart. Well, guess what? That not only applies for the counselee, it also applies to the counselor. And that's part of what Paul's getting to here is examine yourself. What's going on? What's going on internally? What are you wanting? Um, what, what is compelling you? 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, The love of Christ controls us and compels us. Every time I read that verse, I think about Ellis Honecker. You don't know who Ellis Honecker is. Ellis Honecker was an old retired pastor in a church I was a member of when I was in first starting seminary, first and second year of seminary, way back in 19... So a long time ago. And I was about to transfer to another school, and he found out. And I remember one Sunday morning, after Sunday school, and before the worship service, we were out in the hallway, just like out there, and he kind of came up to me, and he started pushing me. He was a little man. He was a lot smaller than I was. And he started pushing me, and he put, my, put his finger in, in my chest, and he said, what compels you? I said, I, 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 I don't know. What's driving you? What's motivating you? What's controlling you? It's like, I don't know. I, I don't remember what I said, but I'll never forget. He said, the love of Christ. That's what ought to control you. And if that's not controlling you, you're not ready for ministry. And um, that goes to our desires. What, why do we do what we do in pouring ourselves out for others? Because we love Christ. Second principle, feed your heart on Scripture and prayer. Okay, for those of you who are counseling or others as well, what are your priorities? When you're assigning homework, what are your priorities? What are you thinking about? When you're assigning homework, what are you thinking about as far as structuring your homework? What are the things that you're focusing on? This is the part where you answer back. Time in the Word. Time in the word. What else? Memorization. Memorization of Scripture. Good. What a Prayer. Character of God, okay. So I'd put that in the meditation category, right? Application. Okay, what kind of application? Putting off and putting on, okay. And whatever you're talking about that week. Okay, okay. Apply that. Okay, so you're giving them some tangible things to do, okay. What else? Corporate worship, absolutely. Fellowship. Okay, so let's think about that. Serving. Service, prayer, scripture, um, meditation, worship, serving. What are those? Spiritual disciplines. So homework, I always, I always orchestrate. This, this is free. This isn't part of the lecture. Whenever I'm doing homework, I always assign. Every, every assignment is orchestrated around some spiritual discipline. And I even put it on the page that way when I sign it. So I'll say Bible memory, Bible study, Bible reading, prayer, worship, service, fellowship. I don't typically do all that in one session, but you know, I'm, those are the kinds of categories I give them so that they see this is just rooted in spiritual disciplines. Well, guess what? Spiritual disciplines are good for counselees and counselors. Right. So you're going to want to feed your heart in the same way. Um, do you remember Acts chapter six? Right. So there's there's a there's an issue in the Jerusalem church 
And the elders are getting tied up in serving the widows. And what do they do? They go to the church and they say, we need some help. We need some guys. We're going to call them servants, deacons, to come alongside us so that we can do what? What did they want to do instead of serving the widows? Prayer and ministry of the word. What are those? Spiritual disciplines. They've got to prepare themselves to know the word so they can dispense the word. And most of all, none of us are apostles, which is what that passage is particularly about. Most of us aren't elders, but that applies to all of us, right? There are implications of that for all of us. Just as they were focused on Bible and prayer, that needs to bear where we are. It, it, it really is that simple, that basic. The Bible is what we counsel, and the Bible is what counsels our own hearts. And what we need when we are prone to weariness, when we are struggling ourselves, is we need the ministry of the Word in our own hearts. And we're, most of us are going to need to learn to be self-feeding, undependent on others, and ministering to our own hearts and counseling our own hearts. And then along with that, Prayer demonstrates our dependence on the Lord. We're just saying in prayer, I can't, you have to do this. I can't, I can't fix this. Um, and you're going to have to do this. And, and so there are other things that we can do, but I, I just think the simplicity of Bible and prayer really gets at the heart of where all the spiritual disciplines are going. You get those down uh, and you will, uh, you will do well in your own heart. So here's the question. What is your own pattern of Bible intake? So when I say Bible intake, I'm thinking Bible reading, Bible meditation, Bible memory, Bible study. So earlier in chapter 4, the apostle says, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, things that you just talked about in the first five verses about um, everything that we have from God is a good gift if we receive it in gratitude and sanctified by means of the word of God in pointing these things out to the brethren. He says, verse six, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine, which you have been following. The word of God is going to nourish and feed your own soul and your own heart. Uh, And that's in contrast, verse seven to worldly fables, don't have anything to do with those worldly fables that are fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And so this is just the pattern in the scriptures. What, what, what our counselees need, what we need is the ministry of the word uh, to care for us, to guide us. So, again, what's your pattern of Bible intake? And what's your pattern of prayerful fellowship with God? So, what what does your prayer life look like? If we peel it back, are you long with God and quick and short with God? Simply meaning, do you have time, dedicated time with the Lord every day? And is your life just characterized by just quick, you know, a back and forth with God? You're driving down the road, Lord, give me wisdom, Lord... Um, I'm not asking you to take out that driver, but, you know, anything you want to do there would be fine. Um, or you're making decisions and you're talking to your wife or you're in the counseling room. It's like, I, I, 
I don't know what to say. Lord, you've got to give me wisdom. I don't know what to say right now. Um, and you're just these, those quick bursts. Um, focused, again, long, intentional, planned, and then immediate. Somebody tells you a problem, you put your arm around them and say, let's pray. And you pray with them. What's the pattern of your life like? Thirdly, and we're going to move faster as we go along. Do what you are learning in Scripture. So here's the principle. Before you minister the word to others, let it minister to you. Uh, And you're familiar, I hope, with um, Ezra. Where it says Ezra, about Ezra in Ezra 7. Uh, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. That's verse 8, Ezra 7, 8. And uh, for on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of the Lord was upon him. So God's guiding him. God's taking him from Babylon back to to Israel. Um, They're going to rebuild the walls. And um, Ezra's there, God's minister, to do that. And then it says, verse 10, this is a critical one I want you to see. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So there's a definite progression. I study, I do, I teach. And there is a sense in which we are not ready to teach what we have learned until we have done. And it's really easy to go, ooh, this is a cool text. I need to apply that to you. No, 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 no. This is a really cool text. I need to apply it to me. This has to gain traction in my own heart. Because again, we're not just dispensing advice. You know, go and do this. I think this will work. We're showing them this is how it works out. So um, last week I had somebody in my office and um, I said, so how are things going? Are you waking up at two in the morning? And she just kind of smiled at me. So, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I said, you're going to... As you go to bed, you're going to, do, you, do you have your phone next to your bed? I mean, everybody now seemingly has their phone next to their bed. Okay, you have your phone next to your bed. Do you have a Bible app on your phone? Yeah. said, the last thing you do before you turn out the light at night is you're going to open your Bible app and you're going to go to a verse you've been meditating on. I gave her a list of verses. These are some verses to meditate on for this situation. You're going to grab one of those verses and you're going to pull that up to the top page on your Bible app. And the last thing you read before you turn off your phone and turn out your light is that verse. You're going to grab it. You're going to put it in your head. So as you're falling asleep, that's what you're thinking about. And at two in the morning, where's your mind going? And she just kind of smiled at me and said, yeah, it's going back to that problem over there. I said, okay, then what you do is at two in the morning when you're tempted to go there, you grab that verse that's in your head that you were thinking about as you were falling asleep And you start meditating on that, praying that, thinking about it, thinking about what it reveals about the nature and the character of God to redirect your heart from your problem to your solution. And if your brain works like my brain at two in the morning, I can't always remember what I was meditating on at 1030. That's why you pulled it up on your app. So all you have to do is open your phone and it's right there. And you're going to. Look at that. You're going to stick it back in your head. You're going to close your phone and then you're going to continue meditating on that verse until you fall asleep. She said, that's really helpful. Inference. How did you know to do that? 
because that's what I have to do to fight anxiety. Because I have those temptations to be anxious as well, right? 69 things going on in my life. And at 2 in the morning, I'm thinking about all, the, all those things in all the wrong ways. And I need help. And so we want to we learn how to, how to help people by doing these things ourselves first. Before you minister the word of God to others, let it minister to you. Listen, you don't want to be like that group of people who became known for their hypocrisy and they became so well known for their hypocrisy that hypocrisy became identified with their job title, which is Pharisee. So the job title is Pharisee, but it's synonymous, even culturally. You go into the culture, you go over to Central Market, and you say something about to one of the employees about being a Pharisee, he'll know exactly what you're talking about. It's so pervasive. We don't want to be like that. Um, so do you have a, regular, a process of regularly using Scripture to transform your own heart? Have you examined your heart enough to know this is where I'm weak, this is where I'm struggling, and this is what needs to change? And are you taking a course of action to address that? Studying what does the Scripture have to say about this? And then, how can I work that out in my own life? What, what are you doing to change? Um, that ought to just be a regular part of your life and my life. Along with that, you want to preach the gospel to yourself daily. Um, I was reading a book today, um, the book by Chapel, uh, that's in your bibliography. And um, he was talking about meditation. This is really just simply another word for meditation. I'm taking the reality of the gospel... And I'm applying it to my life. That's just meditating on what the gospel means to me in my situation today and how I need the gospel today. Um, Sometimes we need to preach to ourselves, remind ourselves of our need for the gospel. We're going to need to take ourselves in hand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and upbraid ourselves and examine ourselves and say, This is where I'm struggling, right? And this is what I need to do as an antidote to that. So... Just the question is, am I regularly identifying sinful actions, sinful tendencies, sinful patterns, and heart conditions of my own life? Um, is there something for which I'm experiencing appropriate guilt? And this is not a high-tech picture, but I love this. You know what guilt does? This, that's from Jay Adams, uh, actually, in Competent to Counsel. You just feel like you've got this weight on you. Well, sometimes that weight is appropriate, isn't it? I'm guilty. I was wrong. I spoke to my wife in an ungodly way. It was driven by, it was an angry word that was driven by a particular kind of desire. Or I was covetous in a particular kind of way. That's coming from somewhere, right? And I need the experience of that guilt, the Spirit of God saying, you know the Scriptures, you know what the Scriptures have to say about that. And I need to go to the gospel and gain release from that. Not for original salvation, obviously, but for fellowship, right? Other times, I might be experiencing guilt, but that guilt is not a godly guilt, right? It's I'm experiencing guilt for something that God doesn't hold me accountable. Um, and so there, I need to apply the grace of Christ and say, I'm not guilty for that. I've acted responsibly. I've not done anything. There's nothing shameful before Christ. These were things that were beyond my control. 
The world might say I should be experiencing guilt, but there's no reason to experience guilt in that situation because I didn't sin. Um, or I did sin, but I've repented of it. I love 2 Corinthians 7.11, right? That passage about, about um, godly sorrow. And at the end of verse 11, he says this about the Corinthians, remembering that they had allowed someone in an incestuous relationship to be a functioning part of the church body. They did not repent of that when they were confronted of it. And instead of repenting, in fact, they attacked the Apostle Paul and said, who are you to tell us what to do in so many words? And they, that went on for a protracted length of time. Um, three letters and at least two visits by Paul and at least one visit by another person before they finally repented. And what does Paul say at the end of verse 11? Does anybody remember? In everything, you proved yourselves innocent. Say what? After the point of repentance, everything they did was innocent. And it would be easy for the Corinthians to say, we're guilty, 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 and continue to have that sense of guilt because they had been But once that guilt is confessed, the guilt is gone. The shame is gone. The rebuke is gone, right? The condemnation from God, that's the best word, is gone. It's washed away by the blood of Christ. And so when that sense of guilt comes back, they can say, wait a minute, that's an inappropriate guilt that's been cleansed. God's bought that. And I don't need to feel shame for that. That's part of preaching the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. Um, give evidence of spiritual fruitfulness. How do you know when a, a counselee is, is ready to graduate? What kinds of things are you looking for? Self. Self counsel. Good. Spiritual disciplines. Fruits of the spirit. Yeah. Um, how do you know? When a counselor is ready to counsel. (laughs) Same stuff, right? And in fact, um, one of the things you can look look towards is is, um, Galatians 5, right? What's the mark of spiritual maturity and fruitfulness? Galatians 5. Um, We're marked by control that comes from the Spirit of God. And notice that when, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he's not talking about the fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit with multiple manifestations. It comes as a package deal. So someone can say, um, well, I'm loving. I just am not very kind. <laughs> same Spirit's working the same thing, brother. Um, You can't just say, well, it's just not the way I'm wired, right? I heard that a lot growing up. Son, we're German. That's just not the way we are. Sorry, I'm in Christ. It's the way we are. Um, The same Spirit works all those things together. So there ought to be apparent growth, direction in all of those areas. Um, That spiritual fruit's not absolute, right? So it's not like it's completely loving, Um, completely kind, completely self-controlled, all those things. But like a good mango, your fruit should be sweet and juicy and shouldn't be mealy, dry, and sour. 
So it ought to, it ought to be attractive. Is, is that kind of fruitfulness part of your life? Listen, the Lord only has one perfect counselor. And He's in heaven at the, at the right hand of God. So we're not looking for perfect counselors, but we are looking for counselors who are being perfected and who are growing in maturity and who are growing in fruitfulness. And it should be obvious to all. So the question is, where do you need to change and grow in spiritual maturity and fruitfulness? What are the blind spots? Maybe you even need to take a sabbatical to refresh yourself in a particular area. We give all of our counselors the month of August off. So we've just started back up. Our counselors are just back getting back into the group September 1. We give them the month of August and we encourage them, don't just take the month off, but take the month off and invest in something. Read something that's going to stretch you. Read something that's going to equip you. Read something that's going to challenge you spiritually, help you grow in Christ, an issue that maybe you're struggling with. And, uh, and there are times and seasons where some of our counselors say, man, I just need a break. I just, I just can't do it right now. I need a break. And we'll give them that break so that they can go work on the things that are particular to them. Number five, use your spiritual gifts in service. Um, we know that we're given spiritual gifts and those gifts are only honoring to the Lord when they're used for the sake of others in the body, right? So that's Romans 12, that's 1 Corinthians 12. You have your gift to serve me. I have my gift to serve you. Um, we understand that. Um, Is using your gift always easy? I mean, it's a gift, right? So you're supernaturally empowered in a particular way that goes beyond just natural gifting. This is the spirit of the triune God. This is the spirit of the infinite God who's empowering you with his strength. So it's easy, right? (laughs) What's hard? About serving. Lots of different things, but what's hard? Way out of my comfort zone. Oh, okay, good. It's out of our comfort zone. What else is hard about serving? Considering others is more important. Dying to self. So, how many, what's your longest case you've ever had? How many times did you meet with them? About 20. 20? We've had almost a weekly for a year with a married couple. Okay, so 40, 50? A year and a half. I lost count at 65 on one. I had another couple that was 32. <laughs> I affectionately called them the plate throwers. Um, they had all kinds of problems. And I remember one, uh, I had a couple sitting in to help them. So I was the counselor and then they had, this other couple was like the weekly, daily <laughs> contact point. And after one time we met with him, he, he came and he put his hands on my desk, leaned across my desk and he says, why are you doing this? Why don't you just give up? And uh, I don't remember how many sessions we were in. Um, Honestly, for me, that's the hard part. It's saying this. It's like parenting. It's saying the same thing over and over and over and over unrelentingly. And they keep coming back. 
So I have a hard time cutting them loose because they're coming and I'm thinking there's going to be some point where they're going to get over the hump. And they don't. And it is, I don't know about y'all, to me that's the exhausting thing. Over and over and over unrelentingly. The difficulty is not just in doing it, but doing it repeatedly and being poured out and used up. That goes to the issue of we're self-absorbed. My daughter is getting a master's and one of my daughters is getting a master's in social work. And the buzzword in social work is (laughs) self-care. We've had lots of talks with her about self-care. I'm not interested in self-care. I'm I'm interested in God-care. How's God going to care for me? And as I read, honestly, as I read the New Testament, I I just see people poured out, used up, sacrificed, martyred even for the sake of caring for other people. So how do you cultivate endurance? I'm sorry? Gospel to yourself. You know, it's interesting... I wrote that question. I thought, okay, well, any question needs an answer. So I started looking around. You know, pastors that talk about patience and endurance and those kinds of things. And what I found was it didn't tell us how. It just told us to do it. Endure. Persist. Part of it is just a mindset. That God's put me here. God's positioned me. Somebody told me last week. And um, I've, I've said this I don't know how many times. She just thanked me. Uh, she said, I, we, we, our family really feels well cared for. We, we feel loved. Um, and I looked her in the eye. I said something that I've probably said dozens of times. I said, I, I am so thankful that God's put me in your life. It's been exhausting. I will acknowledge that. But I'm grateful God's put me in my life because of the seven and a half billion people in this world that he could have used to help you. He chose me. And I am humbled by that. Because it could have been anybody. And in this situation, in this circumstance, he wanted me to walk beside you. And that's an honor. And that kind of thing will help stimulate your endurance. Um, I like what um, Bob Jones says, Robert Jones. He says, counseling will bring pain for the counselor. Counseling will bring pain, but it will also lead to joy if you're willing to carry an extra load. And that is absolutely true. All right, we must move on. Engage in corporate worship. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24, 25 is applicable for counselors as well as counselees. We need corporate worship. Why? Why do you need corp- Why does the counselor need corporate worship? I need to be encouraged by other believers. I need to be encouraged. I'm not the only one, Right? I'm not Elijah here. There are 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Well, in our case, like 225 or 250. But there are others, right? I need somebody ministering the Word of God to me and pouring into me and equipping me and training me. I need that regular interaction and fellowship with the unity of it, with the body to be unified with them. And that, that's just a consistent theme through the Scriptures, right? We need each other. So the question is, does your schedule reflect the priority of worship? And that's getting harder and harder. 
Used to be there was no there were no baseball games or softball or soccer or whatever on Wednesday nights. Now they're not only on Wednesday nights, they're also all day Saturday, late Saturday night and Sunday morning. So what's your commitment? We had a counselor on one occasion that it was she was dealing still deals with ongoing chronic health issues. And it just became regular. On Sunday morning, she was sick and couldn't come to worship. And on Monday morning, she was miraculously healed and able to counsel. And it happened week after week and month after month. And I'm just noticing this trend. Sick on Sunday, well on Monday. Sick on Sunday, well on Monday. Sick on Sunday, well on Monday. And I finally told her, I said, look, here's the, here's the rule. No worship on Sunday, no counsel on Monday. Because you need the ministry of the word yourself. You need to be demonstrating to your counselee the priority of worship. And I get that you're dealing with chronic issues, but if you're so sick that you can't come to worship on Sunday, then you're sick enough to not be equipped to minister on Monday as well. And those two go together. So you've got to engage in worship and fellowship. Practice relational reconciliation. You know this, right? I mean, you've taught this. Matthew 5, Romans 12. Romans twelve eighteen. so much as it depends on you. Finish the verse. Be at peace with all men, right? So as much as, as much as you are part of the process, you be at peace with other people. Um, so here's a question. Do you have any relationships that are unreconciled because of your sin? Now, you may have relationships that are unreconciled. Um, but they may be due to the fact of the obstinacy of the other person. You've gone to the other person. I, I have somebody that lives in our town that's just like that. One of the last conversations I had with him, he said, I went to him and asked for forgiveness for a third time. And he said, yes, I forgive you. But if you think that this is going to put our relationship back where it was, you are sorely mistaken. And by Tuesday, that was a Friday. And by Tuesday, I had his membership resignation. I, I did what I could. Right now, that relationship that's on his head. So do you have any relationships that are unreconciled? Do you have any unreconciled relationships that you have something remaining to do so that you can minister to that person, be connected to that person? Um, Oh, practice relational reconciliation. Sorry, I missed that one. Train your body. Train your body. So we've been in 1 Timothy, if you recognize. I read verses 6 and 7 in chapter 4. I skipped verse 8. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's the, that's the verse that I love on Saturday morning when I tell my wife, let's skip the workout and let's go get breakfast. <laughs> right? Because bodily discipline is only of a little profit. It's just worthless. Ah, that's not what it says. It doesn't say it's worthless. It says it's of little profit. It doesn't say it's not of any profit. There is profit in it. And we need to, we need to um, make sure that we are enjoying food in appropriate ways under self-control. That's verses 3 to 5. And we need to be exercising our bodies. Our bodies under discipline, under control. It is beneficial we can't extend our lives by, by diet and exercise, but we can act sinfully in the treatment of our bodies and shorten our days and make our days less effective. So just a couple questions to not just encourage and exhort, but maybe to get in the kitchen and meddle a little bit. 
Am I exercising in a way that strengthens my body and maintains my health? My wife told me years ago, um, in all honesty, I was grossly overweight. And she said, I can always tell when you're exercising. It didn't have anything to do with the clothes in the laundry hamper. It had to do with my mind. She said, I can tell when you're exercising because you think better. And that's really true. Am I exercising in a way that strengthens my body, maintains my health? Secondly, am I getting the sleep I need nightly so I'm well prepared to serve people the next day? Um, sleep is sleep is a good thing. I mean, it's it's really kind of, you, you think about it, it's kind of crazy. I mean, just look outside. Do those trees sleep? Never. Why? It's just the way God made them. They stand in the sun, they get the energy they need, they grow. God could have made us that way. And he puts us to sleep for a third of our lives, roughly. Why? I think in large part so that every day we have a demonstration, you're not God, and I am. And you've got to trust me while you go unconscious. And so am I getting the kind of sleep that demonstrates I'm dependent on God, God's not dependent on me? Um, and am I taking care of any known physical weaknesses so that my ability to serve the body of Christ is enhanced? Um, sometimes there are going to be physical ills that preclude us from serving. We understand that. But am I doing everything I can to make my body fit so I'm ready to serve others? And then last one, find someone to follow. Um, we should be worthy leaders of others, so we should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, you know, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That ought to be us. That ought to be our mantra. You can follow me as much as I'm following Christ, and I'm going to do as well as I can at following Christ. Uh, but brothers and sisters, I think we also need to be faithful followers of, other, of God's other uh, godly leaders. So a couple of questions. Who's influencing you? Who are the people that are pouring into you? Who's ministering to you? Do you have someone who can encourage you? You have a brother in arms who's going to put his arm around you and say, let's keep going. You're doing a great job. Keep the faith. Um, you have someone that can confront you. Uh, I am blessed by a number of friends and a wife particularly who aren't afraid to say, hey, I saw this. What's going on in your heart? That's helpful. We need, we need people like that. Do you have someone who is a, a step ahead in life to encourage you? I had a friend many years ago who asked me that. He said, who's, who's 10 years ahead of you and one or two stages in life ahead of you? You need, you need to attach yourself to that kind of person so they can help you. Um, now, I'm reaching that stage. I've got a birthday coming up that's going to have another zero attached to it. And it has a number that I, it doesn't feel like it ought to be a six, but it is. Praise God. I'm not afraid of it. I'm really not. It's just stunning where the time went. Um, Yeah, and I know what you're going to say next, so you don't need to say that. Well, I'm also reaching the stage now where there, aren't, there are fewer and fewer people ahead of me. So what do you do then? You find a dead person or a distant person. So a distant person for me have been John Piper and John MacArthur. They've ministered to me through their writings. And the dead people start with Thomas Watson. He's been dead a long time. 
And you find people like that that will minister to your soul, that will instruct you and guide you. Are you guys familiar with Piper's um, biography series, The Swans Are Not Silent? Seven little books. They're about 130, 140 pages. Three biographies in each one. I just read one this week. Um, actually read it on audio. It took two and a half hours. And it just ministered to my soul. Um, because these are guys that are faithful. The Swans Are Not Silent. It's a series of books. Um, the one I read this week was Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ, talking about suffering. A really, really helpful book. All right. From the Gospel for Disordered Lives, in biblical counseling, the counselor must cultivate their own relationship with the Lord through prayer, study of Scripture, and regularly reminding themselves of this truth. For example, the more a counselor appreciates the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the less likely they will be to give in to temptation. The more thankful they are for sustaining an ongoing grace they receive to serve the Lord in sensitive ministry situations, the more likely they will be to let Jesus motivate their thoughts and actions. The more we believers run to gospel truths, the less likely any temptation will produce sin. So feed your hearts. Compel your hearts to go to Christ and you'll be a fit servant of others in the counseling room.